Welcome to the Bold SLP Podcast. We are so happy that you're here and can't wait to share with you all of the amazing conversations we've been having. We are the co-founders of the Bold SLP Collective, and we are also your hosts, Lisa, Desi, and myself, Ingrid. Each of us has a variety of experiences in all things bilingual and bimodal speech-language pathology. You'll get to know us pretty well on here. We started this podcast to share our lived experiences, but also because we want to bring advocacy and cultural humility to the forefront of every speech therapy conversation. We hope that you'll join us each week, and we hope that you enjoy this episode. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Bold SLP podcast. Uh, This is Ingrid here um, with Lisa and Desi and our very special guest, Michelle Posner. She's one of our favorite favorite listeners. She gives us all the feedback and we love it. And we met her at ASHA and we told her she had to be on the podcast for the next season. I'm going to introduce her to you. Her name is Michelle. She's an SLP. Some interesting, super fun things I learned about Michelle when she shared her bio. Um, She was born in Mexico City. I didn't know that about you, Michelle. She moved to Houston, Texas when she was nine. So she was put in an all-English school with no supports at nine years old. Uh, When she was 13, she was blessed with a younger brother who has autism. Doctors advised Michelle's family to stop speaking Spanish in the home due to her brother's delays. So she saw firsthand the devastation that this can cause in a family and family dynamics. This inspired Michelle to become an SLP. Uh, We were just saying that she has more experience than all three of us put together. So we're thrilled to have her here. In 2009, she launched a company, Bilingual SLP. She started with a set of Spanish articulation cards and then she became a mom. Uh, She put her business on hold back then, but in 2020, Michelle relaunched Bilingual SLP with the same Spanish articulation cards, and currently she has a TPT store and a Boom Learning store with more than 100 bilingual speech therapy products. So her focus is not only to provide these quality Spanish products for bilingual SLPs, but also to empower monolingual SLPs with bilinguals on their caseload, which is why we love Michelle. Uh, And we were just having this conversation before with Deandra about how it's not a matter of if you're going to get a bilingual or multicultural child on your caseload, it's a matter of when. So you're already ahead of the game creating these resources and advocating for our monolingual peers to get involved. So we'll get started, Michelle, with our questions for you. We're so excited. Um, I know a little bit about your experience with linguistic oppression uh, from hearing your story and how that guides your advocacy as an SLP. But what makes you you? What makes Michelle the SLP that you are? Well, thank you guys for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I think it's my life experiences, right? I feel I've always been for the Spanish speakers, ni de aquí ni de allá, like neither here nor there. And, you know, I've never just fully fit into a bucket. So I would say my story really starts with my grandparents. They're from Eastern Europe. We are Jewish. They escaped the Holocaust and went to Mexico. And so that was the first immigration of my family. Um, They only spoke Yiddish and learned Spanish. So as a child, I learned Yiddish and Hebrew and Spanish. Like I was trilingual by the time I was done with fourth grade. And then I, I got hit in the face with all the linguistic oppression As soon as I came to the States, I was denied entrance to the private Jewish school in Houston because I didn't speak English. 
Um, and that was a, a huge shock. I, I had never known anything outside the world of private schools. So I went to my public school and um, they, they stopped ESL support in third grade. So I was entering fifth grade as a September baby with no ESL support. Um, their, their best efforts were like a workbook they gave me during reading where they had me trace the letters of the alphabet but like they're the same in Spanish. So I don't really know what they were trying to teach me. And it was uh, very sink or swim. And I, I just never also like the culture clash. Like I look white, but I speak Spanish and they'd never seen a Mexican Jew. And I feel like all my life has just kind of been this like contradictory, where do I stand? And obviously the experience of my brother, Danny, it, it completely changed. You know, my, even to this day, I'm only allowed to speak to my mom in Spanish. But my brother and the younger siblings speak in English to my mom and she responds in Spanish. And, you know, I just, I feel like if I hadn't been blessed with a brother with autism, maybe I wouldn't be driving him to speech therapy and even know of this career. That's how I know of this career is because I was, you know, his chauffeur for quite a while. I'm 13 years his senior and I was around him and special needs kids. He went to a special needs school and they were just kind of like my people. And I don't know, uh, you know, I, I've been in this field kind of always feeling like an outsider. And I, that's why I'm so blessed to even be brought on. Anytime I see another like minority or like um, bilingual SLP, I'm like, yes, you're my people. You don't know me, but you're my people, you know? And I've just been a very fiery advocate for our kids. You know, I think most of us become SLPs because we want to help. And um, I want to help and stand on my soapbox about bilingualism. Did you want to say something, Lisa? I sure do. Go ahead. <laughs> the fact that you were trilingual and that didn't count for anything is just mind-blowing to me. What the heck, first of all? And I lost my Hebrew and my Yiddish because oh. I was denied entrance. So when I learned English, I lost my Hebrew and Yiddish. Like I can count to 10 in Yiddish and say bread and butter. Because it sounds like a bad word in Spanish, but always be puted, right? Doesn't that sound like it's bad? Yikes. And um, my Hebrew skills get me by in reading services, but like I, I lost them. I lost them both. Uh, your story is, is just so inspirational. I know we're just at the beginning of it, but just if you could like walk me through a little bit, like what those first few days were like in that in that new school. I mean, I know you talked about the workbook and the ridiculous letters, but like, were you able to make friends? Was there anything to look forward to at school? It sounds so awful. Yeah, it, I remember crying a lot. I had like this like picture of my dad and I would bring it out at lunch. Why did I do that? I don't know. I, I had a hard time, but there were kind kids. I didn't experience any bullying. I had, it's like I had landed on a planet where I had no idea what anyone was saying. Thank God for math. I remember being like, I know this. These, This is my language. So yeah, I, I was able to make friends. I, I remember my first day, like clearly, you know, we were sitting there and in fifth grade was the year that you got to choose whether you wanted to be in the choir, in the orchestra or in the band. But all I saw were people coming in and out with different instruments. And my teacher chose for me because I wasn't able to express 
what it is that I wanted, why it is that she decided I should be in the choir. I don't know. But I, I just remember be, feeling like I'm in a, in a whole different place, like no idea what was going on around me. And then as I was like learning words, I made a lot of mistakes, like pronouncing beach. I didn't pronounce it right. I didn't understand that there's such a word as bathing suit. Um, I only knew bikini. And I remember for fifth grade, my birthday party was a swimming party. It's Texas, y'all. And so I was telling everyone to bring their bikini. And then I thought no one was going to come to my party because they were saying something back like, like, no, but they were just trying to tell me they were going to wear a one piece that I did. I didn't know. So it was um, fifth grade was an interesting year for sure. And I imagine that kind of shapes how you view the world and then how you view our field. I wanted to ask you because you are a veteran in the field. When did you realize how white our field is? You know, it hit me in grad school. I, I always had all these grand dreams, right? I'm from a very Latina household. So leaving the house for college was like, not a thing. I went my first two years, I lived at home. And the only reason I got to go was my mom got divorced. And in a moment of weakness, she told me I could go anywhere I wanted. Um, and so when I was picking the college that I was going to go to, I knew I wanted to work with bilinguals. So I was like, all right, I'm applying Texas, California, New York, Arizona, and Florida. And when I got into Florida, man, I was like so excited. And in undergrad, it wasn't so evident. And then as soon as I got to grad school, we were a cohort of 60, which is very big for a grad program. There were four or five black colleagues and I was the only Latina. There were two or three professors who were black. There were none that were um, of Latin descent or, or of any other rate. They, everybody was white. And then like the things I started to notice, you know, those who didn't have a job were the ones that were able to handle the coursework. You know, you can't, to be in graduate school, they expect you to do it all. And I was like, oh, how, oh, how privileged these people that the expectation is that you will do school and only school and that that is gonna be your life for two years. Um, that was a, was a hard hit. You know, I had had all these grand ideas about what I was going to do for my thesis or thesis alternative, but there was no professor who knew Spanish or about bilinguals to teach me. I ended up taking like a graduate level Spanish linguistics course to learn Spanish phonetics because like all of the people who right now have a like bilingual extension, man, how lucky you are because I had nothing. And there I am in Florida, right? That, that was the, the big hit. And then when I came out to the world in my CF year, again, my supervisor could not support me. They gladly gave me like my huge, huge Hispanic caseload enough that I, I took on like all the Latinos in Lakeland, Florida. And I still had a waiting list, 40, 60 kids deep. And I was like, how is there nobody else who can serve these kids? 
And I would get calls from hospitals and private practices nearby, 45 minutes away, where I was Michelle Island of one, the bilingual SLP. And I was like, that's when it hit me. And back then, when I had looked it up, that 2% of ASHA SLP spoke a language other than English. Two, I mean, we've gone up, but it's it's really not a lot since, you know, I've been out for quite a while. So um, yeah, and, and just the longer I've been in the field and doesn't matter where I've moved, hospitals, schools, it's it's a very white field. And it's and it's also like the chips are against the bilinguals, right? Both the therapists and the kids, my one and only school-based SLP position. I was at a school, 86% Hispanic in Florida. I was not allowed to give therapy in Spanish, not allowed. The psychologist would come to me and ask me for what interventions we could do for English language learners, but the interventions had to be in English. And I'm like, okay, I have language impaired monolingual Spanish speakers and I am able to give them therapy and accommodations in that language that they're delayed in, but you want to give it to them in English? It just, it's, it's mind boggling. And I don't know if the rules have changed in Florida, but when I was school-based in Florida, therapists were not allowed to give therapy in Spanish. Oh, it's like a make it make sense kind of moment. I mean, and it's still happening. I hear this. I heard this recently about, um, I have a colleague in New Hampshire. Um, she practices in New Hampshire. She's part of the grad, uh, she has graduate students that she works with. And it's the same thing. Like it's happening in Massachusetts. It's happening in New Hampshire. And I wonder if it's just a question of when, um, you know, going back to this question, this idea of when, when the lawsuits start flying or due process comes around, because I don't, I don't see how that is at all ethical. Um, and I know it's still happening. So yeah, we, we have a really big problem with monolingualism in English. Uh, I mean, we are just so obsessed in this country. And if I hear English as the language of instruction one more time, I think I might break. <laughs> But another thing to keep track, right? I'm now in the DMV and in the DC area where lawsuits are happening frequently. I've gone to multiple hearing officer complaints. Um, it's never the minorities who sue, you know, it's it's always the well-off white people, uh, families who want private placement for their child and a dedicated aid and all the things and all the bells and whistles and they win. Because our immigrant Latino, you know, they're not going to ruffle any feathers. They're not going to go and sue and say, oh, this shouldn't have happened. And I've, I've heard some awful stories and I have begged families, please, here's the number. Here's advocates for justice. They are free attorneys, but the families who really need those services aren't getting it. And that's not fair. It's messed up. Yeah, we've had these conversations too with Melissa. I'm like having flashbacks, Lisa, from Melissa's conversation about access because there's so many barriers to so many things like you're discussing, Michelle. Like I'm thinking like our families not even not even like forget like they don't have a lawyer or money. Like they might not even understand our system. 
because it's so different from where they come from. Like they might not know system. how to read, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's great if you give them the procedural safeguards, a, a stack in, you know, very great Spanish, but I don't know, but in Latin America, yeah, at least in Mexico, second, third grade, they drop out of school to go help the family. You know, they get a job and just because they're here doesn't mean that they can read it just because it's in their language or maybe they can read it, but the wording is so, I it's don't know. Like, so jargon jargony, right? That yeah. like, they don't know. Yeah. And it's, yeah, the access, the access is definitely something that gets me all the time, like all the time, even with IDEA, even with how litigious it can be where I am. I'm always surprised that families are not being offered an interpreter or they're pulling in the secretary for IEP meetings. I feel like Th- things are, things are intentionally convoluted here anyway. And I know, cause when I walk parents through certain systems I myself I'm like oh what does this mean I know what what the purpose is and I know which questions absolutely need to be answered and which are just a product of an old template you know um but there's just because you went back to Melissa's thing there's a problem with access so there's first of all the awareness you know these communities don't even know that there's something out there that will help them so you've already done step one Michelle by telling them then there's the convoluted language they don't have an interpreter or even if they have their own language it's really put in a way that is easily misunderstood um but in our case especially like my specific community we know that things are not for us or these systems were not put in place for us so we're like are we going to go and put ourselves in harm's way are they going to ask us questions about something else that that will you know get us into trouble so we just kind of lay low it's it's so sad. It's really hitting me so hard that you're like, the marginalized communities are not the ones to ruffle feathers, even though they're the ones that are losing out every which way on all of the things that they have rights to in this in this place. Yeah, I feel like most of the families, so, you know, my day job, all I do is testing and placement for special ed for kids two and a half to five and a half. And the first things that I do is explain to the families, like, here... We special education does not mean we're going to send your kid off somewhere else. It's going to be at the school, like your neighborhood school might be a different classroom. Like I break it down to the level of, we're not going to take your child away. I break it down to, I need you to tell me what is difficult so I can help them be supported. I'm, we're not going to hold them back because they weren't able to do these things. I'm not gonna judge you whether you speak Spanish or English in the home. You know, I I always, I have to bring it all the way back to the like, this is a safe space. I am, I am going to make sure you understand. Ask me all the questions. And then at the end of like the two hour evaluation with like PT, OT, psych, you know, we have like multidisciplinary. I always give him my card and I say, you know what? When I go to the pediatrician, I always hate it because I think of all my questions when I've already left. I'm not your pediatrician. So if you think of something tonight or tomorrow or this weekend, you call me, you text me, here's my card. We're here to, I'm here to support you through this whole process. And I hope more of us could bring it down to that level, right? You know, because they come so guarded and that's, and that's just the Latinos, 
right? I there's a lot of families from Ethiopia here, and you know where Amharic is a language, and I'm using the interpreter, and there's a lot of things that I'm all I'm I'm always learning and having to be sensitive. Like I can't tell you how long it took me to understand that. You know, in Ethiopia, they don't eat with a spoon and a fork. So that needs to be out of my questionnaire. They eat, you know, with their hands or the family feeds them. That's culturally appropriate. And I can't be marking them and my OT can't be marking them for not eating with a spoon and fork because it's not culturally what they do in the home. Um, so I don't know. That's that's the shift. You know, that's that's where we really should be. It's 2023, you know. Perfect segue for our last question for you. Where do you think the field is headed now? I'm going to tell you where I want the field to go. So, you know, it, it feels a fire inside me, right? That it's been 30 years since my mom went to the doctor and the doctor told my mom to stop speaking Spanish in the home. And that 30 years later, I'm still hearing that. I'm still hearing that doctors are saying that. I, you know, I proudly put on the stickers that say bilingualism doesn't cause speech delays, right? But the fact that I have to have a sticker to promote that. So it's, I, I want it to be like that common knowledge. You know, the facts are there. I want to say the last census said one in five children in the U.S. speak a language other than English in the home. One in five. They're in our caseloads. The solution can't be what I was told when I graduated. We just need more bilingual SLPs. I've been Michelle Island of one, and I can only speak one dialect of one language, right? There are way too many languages. There are way too many kids, and we cannot deny them service and pass it on to the bilingual SLP who might speak Hebrew. Um, this isn't my problem. You need a bilingual. We got to... We got to stop that. And I, I want us all not just to be comfortable, but competent in learning and adapting and serve these families. That, that's where I, I, I want us to go, you know, with the same like fire and, and passion. Let's take on that cultural, you know, it's not intelligence, but like sensitivity, understanding. Let's Let's, we have so much research, so much knowledge. Let's put it to work because the truth is graduate programs are a long way away from making it accessible to make this feel less white. Let's be honest. It, we need to get there, yes. But right now we need to get everyone, white, black, Latino, Muslim, everyone on board with, we got to help each other out and we have to lift each other up right? It's not a competition. It's about what do you know? What do I know? How can we together make this child and this family overcome this? That's where I want us to go. Thank you, Michelle. Are you guys ready for your last word? I'm struggling with mine. Can uh, I be last? Yeah, you can be last. <laughs> I'm struggling with mine because uh, when we started, I started thinking with my Spanish brain. And the more I heard you talk about how nothing's changed. I thought of the word estancado instead. <laughs> like our field is, I don't know how to, like in a pond, we're like stuck in this pond of mud. Like how do we get it smelling? Maybe the sewery, sewery it's pond? It's starting to smell really bad here. Like 
how do we get out of here? So what's a word for that? Like unstuck. I was literally searching it on my phone. Like what's another way of saying like un get unstuck, like get, I don't know. Oh That's how I'm feeling. Just like hearing you be in the field for so long and your experience was my experience was Desi's experience with Lisa's experience is mostly the experience of the mentees we have on beam still. And I'm like, we are estancados as a field. Like we're stuck. And how do we get out of it? And whose job is it? Like, <laughs> that's what I was thinking. Is that a word? Stuck in a rut? Your, yeah. your, your stories are just so inspirational, Michelle. Like it's, this was so beautiful to listen to your lived experience. And then you taking that and not being jaded by it, but just making sure that no one goes through what you went through. It's, it's truly beautiful. Um, I, I feel like I'm cheating because I'm using some of your final words as my last word, but I liked competence over comfort. I thought that was really nicely put. So those are my last words. Desi. Desi oh, no. Last. I, you know, honestly, it's been really wonderful to listen to how much you have invested over the years in just being the best SLP you can with people from different cultures. Um, because I feel like that's really a measure of how good of an SLP you can be, um, at least in my mind, um, is how well can you work with people who are different from you? And it is refreshing. Well, have that be my word. Refreshing um, to have this conversation with you and to hear that you know, this is something that you've kind of used as your North Star in your profession and you're in, in, in our field and that you set the bar high for everyone. Um, so I hope that people take that away from this conversation. Well, since some of you use the phrase, I'm using a phrase for my last word. And it's and it's one that I heard before that that always stuck with me. Lift as you climb. And so that's how we're going to get out of that rut, el estancado, is that for however we can, we we hold each other by the hand as we continue to climb up. So all of you so beautifully uh, complimented me, and yet I am so inspired by all of you who came together and put on this podcast, and you're what I listen to like every day. Um, I am a huge fangirl, and the fact that you guys think highly of me is um it's gonna make me cry so that's my last word let's all lift each other up as we climb thank you so much michelle thank you, michelle thank you, thank you. amazing y'all my favorite thank you for listening and supporting the bold slp collective you can find a closed caption version of this podcast on our youtube channel we will also have show notes on our website if you enjoyed this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you do all the podcast things. Follow, subscribe, download, and review. And don't forget, we love hearing from you, so connect with us on Instagram at the Bold SLP Collective. Stay bold and humble. See you next time. <laughs>